Set down your sleepy water and your Mr. Whistle. Take off that raincoat and grab a cold beer. It's time to have a real talk about pediatric dentistry. You're listening to Bruise and Tiny Teeth, the unfiltered pediatric dentistry podcast. Yeah, I had GA today in office GA and I was it was originally six cases and then one of them fell off and then another mom who was going to pay cash fell off last minute which doesn't happen very often we're pretty good at keeping it pretty full so we were to four well then added um another one on last minute so we were at five well anyways we got through the first four and then we got to the fifth one and it was a 10 year old girl who i had seen um a few months ago like in june was able to get her in which for august is pretty good timing for us because we're we're booked out quite a bit further in that and uh she like would not take the versed um, wouldn't take any pre-med was struggling with it, uh, being really difficult. The nurse and the the doctor we had were, um, you know, not, not ones that are typically in our office that probably would have gotten it done. And, uh, parents weren't on the same page. They were arguing, like, she just didn't want to take it. She's 10, like, nope, like I don't want to. And they were like bribing her and trying all these different things. And then, <laughs> excuse me, then the parents got frustrated and, and, uh, it all went to hell and she ended up not taking it. She wouldn't let us start an IV. So it was the first case that we had, if it was up to me, this was a behavior thing. Like she was just being naughty. I would have just taken her if parents and I were on the same page. Like, we're just going to pick her up. We're going to take her back. She's going to be pissed off. We're going to put her in the chair and mask her down and get her out of here and, and, uh, mask her down, Sivo and and rock and roll. But nobody else was on the same page with me. So that was the first one of probably, I don't know how many hundreds I've done now that we couldn't get it done. So she's going to get referred to somebody with hospital privileges and, they're going to get creative or do some ketamine or do something. But, uh, the, the parents were like kind of sassy or I don't know, not sassy, but just like frustrated almost with me or with us. And it's like, I, this is like a behavior thing. This is, I can't fix years of bad parenting in a, a short amount of time, but I had the first one of those today. So that was my, my, um, in office GA experience of the day here. Interesting. So you guys are doing Versed and then an IV induction. No, no. Uh, we do it kind of traditionally, like, you know, when I'm about 10 minutes done with the, with the case I'm working on, they'll go give the nurse will go give Versed on the next kiddo, let that sink in, let it kind of soak. And then we bring the kid back and mask him down with SIVO. And then once they're out, you know, okay. they, then we start the IV propofol nasal tube. But with this girl, like she wouldn't take the Versed. And so the other option was, well, we can start an IV on her. And obviously if she's not going to take medicine, she's not going to do said, well, then mom's concerned, like, well, if we're going to have to go see another dentist, like, isn't, uh, what happens if the cavities get worse and she had some big cavities, like big bombed out six year molars and stuff. It's like, oh, I guess if they start bothering her, call me and I can get her on some antibiotics or something. She's like, well, she won't take antibiotics either. She doesn't take any medicine. It's like, well, clearly like this is all stemming a lot deeper than just a failed dental appointment today. So I was a little frustrated, but our, our batting average has been pretty good, uh, besides that, but <laughs> anyways, excuse me, besides my cough day, how's, um, I haven't caught up with you. I'm just going to like rob the podcast if I keep talking. So I wanted to hear how things are going. How, uh, how's life up in Minnesota treating you? Yeah, it's going really well. I'll be at my three year mark for the practice in September, which is hard to believe. Wow. Um, and yeah, things are going great. I'm swamped and struggling to keep up with everything. We're operatives booked out to October right now. And I'm figuring out how to trying to get more patients in on that and mm-hmm. um yeah it's been it's been a crazy last year and it's been really good man three years because i remember uh i remember pretty vividly when it was covid and you and i were talking about the startup stuff 
because you had been open, I don't know what, four months, five months, six months, something like that, like just getting your feet under you. And then the COVID shutdown yeah. happens and everything. And you're, uh, yeah, I opened on September 9th. So March 9th, <laughs> I saw like three kids back for their first cleanings. And then that was my last day open and closed for 11 weeks. <laughs> oh man. And I was just like, it was just terrible. Yeah, it was crazy. But I remember at the time I was like, you know, we're going to look back on it in a year or two even, and just like laugh about it and it's all going to be fine. But yeah. Um, you, you were, we talked no, about, it was you. great actually. My, oh, oh sorry. I was going to say you, uh, you got some PPP, like you managed to tap in on, on getting a PPP loan to kind of help out too, right? A little bit. The PPP was all based off of employees and I only had a full-time receptionist and a part-time assistant at the time. So I got mm-hmm. a little bit, but it was, it was like $10,000. So it didn't bridge, bridge mm-hmm. too much, but I'll take it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my second daughter was born three weeks into COVID. So I ended up with a eight week paternity leave that, um, <laughs> I want to trade in hindsight now. So it all mm-hmm. worked out. Uh, David, how about, um, just, to, for people, obviously you and I kind of know each other's stories more since we went to dental school together and, but, um, for people listening, maybe just back up and, uh, get everybody caught up, like what your story is, you know, we're going to talk about some startups and stuff today and then kind of how your practice has evolved. But, uh, um, you know, start us off. You and I went to Iowa together, but give me your dental background and kind of start me from the beginning. Yeah. Um, my, uh, grandpa and my dad are actually both dentists. Um, so since kindergarten, I said that I wanted to be a dentist and I pretty much never wavered on that one. And then I got to university of Iowa and I was planning on either taking over my dad's family practice in Iowa or going to oral surgery or orthodontics were really the only ones I was considering. And I had a few of my dad's friends I had shadowed for those and I was planning on doing those. And then good old Dr. Canellis started talking to me at Iowa and being like, you should think about peds like Fort Dodge needs a pediatric dentist. There's no one there. I was like, ah, no, I don't want to deal with crying kids all day. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. I'll talk about it later. And then he'd bring it back up again. He's like, well, why don't you come shadow me? It's like, oh, okay, fine. I'll come shadow you. And started spending more time with him and shattering him and looking into this. I'm like, Pete's is actually a lot of fun. Like most of the time they're fun kids to deal with and fun to be around and it's fast paced and you got the hospital environment. And by the time I got to my junior year, Pete's was the only thing that I was really considering and interested in. So I applied to some pediatric residencies, got accepted at Minnesota and then uh, ended up getting married to a girl from Minnesota. Um, So the plan of going back to Iowa kind of fell through on that. So then we were trying to figure out where to go and we had moved for dental school, we had moved for residency. Then I was planning on moving again for an associate ship position and working for a couple of years to get just my speed up and get kind of the hang of things and then open up a startup. And she was like, I've already moved twice. Really don't want to move another time knowing that we're not going to stay there. Do you think you can just start one up right out of right out of residency? It's like give it my best shot. So um, we had a newborn at the time. And so I was planning a startup in residency with a newborn baby. And um, yeah, ended up starting up in Woodbury, Minnesota, which is just a suburb of the Twin Cities three years ago. And I couldn't be more happy with it. We love the city that we're in. The practice is doing great. And we're feeling settled now and things are going really smoothly. But it's been quite the ride for the last 10 years. Yeah, for sure. So give me like some more of the power details behind um, the background of this startup. Uh, I know you said it was it was a scratch start, but you were able to find um, and, uh, 
excuse me. Yeah, you were able to find like an older dental office that was had some of the plumbing and the infrastructure in place and kind of um, renovated of sorts. And then just tell me about like the space you're in, um, what your office looks like, and then kind of what your growth trajectory sort of looked like that first couple of years. Yeah, I was super fortunate. Um, there was a pediatric dentist that was in town um, that they just moved from the facility that I'm in to a larger facility. They built a new um, space to expand their practice. They were about 20 years old for the practice, and they had like I think a year and a half left on their lease, and they subleased it to an orthodontist who was thinking about doing a startup in the area or a satellite practice. And they kind of remodeled it, updated the carpet, updated the walls, put a decent amount of money into the facility. They spent nine months there and then decided that when they would have taken over a 10-year lease, that the satellite practice just wasn't something they were going to pursue. So then it went um, just up for normal lease. Um, and I got the space and it had five rooms already built out. There um, uh, like five individual rooms, all with doors on them for the practice. Um, which is um, yeah, not the traditional open bay status, but um, I really like having all the individual rooms and they're already built out. I really just had to drop equipment into it. I painted the walls and um, just in the operatories, I put TVs on the ceilings and dropped equipment in and that was all I had to do. So I didn't have any build out, which saved a lot of money and really helped out at the beginning on things. Um, so that was a huge blessing on that, getting the practice going. And then what was the other? Was well, the other how, I guess I question how much, like, did you have to get a loan to some degree to help with some of the build out stuff or some of the equipment, I guess, like, you know, <laughs> um, outfitting equipment. Did you have a, um, like a dental loan you had to get? <laughs> yeah, I got a startup loan through Bank of America. I still ended up taking out close to 400,000 on it. Mm -hmm. um, but I put, I think it was a 50,000 for the build out for, um, putting in, they had carpet in the treatment room. So I put hard floors, touched up the walls, put in the TVs, and then I actually had to put nitrous in. They didn't have nitrous before. So that cost a little bit of money. Sure. Um, but then I ended up having money to work with and I was on kind of a time crunch. I was planning on having like a six month build out and time to look for equipment and try to save money on everything. And I ended up having the space that was ready to go. And I graduated residency on July 1st, and the space was available on August 1st. Um, so I ended up just ordering new equipment, which uh, really nice to have new equipment, but I spent a little more money on that. Um, but outfitted four rooms with new equipment. And then, um, yeah, just a few other things for marketing, the website, and working capital and stuff. Ended up taking out about 400000 for that. Yeah. Uh, for the startup loan still. Not bad. For, you know, that's, that's, on the low side, you know, pretty much everybody I feel like I talk to maxes out that loan amount of, you know, 500, you know, 550 or sometimes even six that you get. Um, but it's cool. You're able to mm -hmm. you get approved and get all that going right after residency. You know, I, I was a, um, a year of associating and then got going, but there's not a lot of people, not a lot of uh, pediatric dentists left who can do a startup, say they've done a startup right out of residency. That's a lot to juggle, um, at once. So that's pretty cool. That yeah. It was a lot to juggle. What was your ideal practices for that? Oh, tell, tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. I was going to ask what the, um, the timeline was of all the build out, like when you started doing things, but I forgot that you used Jamie Amos and, uh, ideal practices, which yeah. um, I'm sure a lot of like listeners have probably seen a lot of like his Facebook post and he's very like, um, like a talker and in your face and like, we're going to get your practice to a, you know, all these big numbers and stuff. But, um, I, I have heard 
positive reviews for the most part. But yeah, tell me more about your experience with ideal practices. Yeah, I had a wonderful experience with them. They were great to work with and really took a lot of the kind of the stress off of figuring out all the new stuff. And I think the biggest part of it is just what you're kind of willing to put into the practice and how much time and effort you're willing to put into it. And at the time, I was a second year resident. I had a newborn baby at home and was trying to juggle residency, um, being a new father and get the practice going. And was like, I just need to not have to worry about a lot of the details, know that things are going well. And it's worth it to have someone walk me through the process on everything when I don't have the or I don't feel like I have the time to devote to it. Um, so just having them, yeah, just run ideas by them, walk me through everything, look at the space, look at the equipment, kind of go over everything with me. I thought was really valuable and really helped my process. But as far as do you end up in a, a better spot or you have a more productive startup working with the consultants, I don't think you're necessarily in any different spot. I think if you look at all the Facebook groups and do your homework on everything and talk to other people that have done it, you can do everything without consultants. You're just going to have to put a lot more in the legwork into it yourself and um, just be kind of confident in your decisions that you're making on the whole process. But um, I was thrilled with working with them. I thought it worked really well. But I think as far as are you going to end up in a more profitable startup and stuff like that, working with the consultants, I think you can do it either way and be in the same position. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I've heard from other people as well. So that was a, um, a good answer to that. You know, it sounds like if, if you're the type of person that maybe – you know, um, you're, <coughs> I'm going to apologize 10 times for this cough today that I'm, I'm fighting with. So when on, on a podcast, that's annoying to listen to. So I'm sorry. Um, but, um, uh, it sounds like if you're the type of person who wants to do a startup, but maybe doesn't have the time, has family, maybe like you're unsure of some things, you need a second set of eyes. Like it's, you know, if you're okay with paying a little bit extra, it can just help you have somebody in your corner to facilitate the process. So, um, so yeah, definitely sounds like a, a good option for, um, for some people, but tell me about like, I guess how many patients you had that, you know, that first while that you got going and I know COVID kind of threw a wrench into things, but, um, you know, some people it's a, it's kind of a slow rolling build and that, uh, to get the steam going, to build up your practice, get a bunch of kids coming in. Sometimes you open the doors and you have a mass of kids coming in, but I know your area is a little bit more competitive cause you're in a nicer area of the, the twin cities and stuff. So tell me about your growth trajectory when you opened up. <laughs> yeah, it's been very up and down for a few different reasons. Um, I opened up in Woodbury, which is a pretty nice suburb of the Twin Cities. There's um, about 80,000 people or so in the community itself and probably about 120,000 in the 20-minute drive time around. And there's, two, there's like seven or eight pediatric practices within about 25 minutes of uh, my practice. Um, so it's a pretty saturated area as far as um, other pediatric dentists are in the area. And I opened the practice originally um, not accepting Medicaid. Medicaid in Minnesota a couple of years ago was 49th out of 50 in the country for reimbursement. It was hardly, hardly would cover your expenses, probably didn't cover expenses on a lot of stuff. I think it was like $56 for a class two filling and um, just could hardly keep up on stuff. So I opened it in a pretty competitive area without taking any Medicaid. And it, it grew well, and I was happy with the growth on it, but it was a pretty slow process. I was getting about 35 to 50 new patients a month at the beginning. So I was um, really fortunate to have two associate positions, um, one for a former, former faculty of mine at Minnesota, 
And then another just I was subbing in at a group practice in the cities for things. So I had a really good kind of side income coming in. Um, but um, let's see, COVID happened six months into it. So for the first year, which was about 10 months, I broke even on the first year for expenses um, from the practice itself. And then I had my money from the associate positions. And then the second year, I was fairly profitable um, on things. I think I collected around like 150, 180,000 of profit for the second year. And then um, just towards the end of the second year, Minnesota changed their Medicaid reimbursement rules, and they pretty much doubled the reimbursement across the board on everything. Um, so they went from being about worst in the country to one of the best in the country for reimbursement. And so I started accepting Medicaid about eight months ago, and then everything just kind of exploded from there. Wow. So what is your new patient? Uh, what is your new patient? Oh, yeah. You were just going to say, how many kids are you up to now from a new new patient standpoint? Um, I'm averaging between about 100 and 120 new patients a month right now. Um, about awesome. 70 or so of those are Medicaid and about 50 or 60 are private insurance um, per month right now. Is uh, Minnesota, is it a managed care state? Like, do you have different managed care uh, providers that, that uh, administer the Medicaid plan or is it administered directly with the state? Do you know? Um, yeah, it's all managed care. There's um, three different companies that have been contracted out to manage them. Delta Dental um, is kind of the main one. And then there's some local ones called Health Partners and then United Healthcare does as well. I don't really know why, but two of the plans, the Health Partners and United Healthcare, reimburse about 10% lower than the Delta Dental plans. Um, and they're all Medicaid. People can choose whichever one they want every year. People get to choose which one. So I don't really know why they reimburse different. Um, but the one administered through Delta Dental reimburses better. And that's the only one that I went kind of um, in contract with. So there's what three different companies that administered them. And I'm only going through one of them. Oh, wow. We're okay. Accepting patients from the other two. Nice. Nice. Yeah, that's kind of, crazy. You got all that sure growth. Do it that way. All that growth in just one managed care company. Missouri, Missouri sounds like their Medicaid system set up really similar to Minnesota where we have three, um, managed care providers, United, Denequest and Involve. Um, United's pretty good and Involve and Denequest are garbage. They're terrible to work for, but, um, but yeah, Missouri dude is doing the same thing. Part of why I wanted to talk to you about this because, um, you know, Missouri Medicaid has paid. Okay. I think, uh, a class two has always been like, 70 some bucks and a stainless steel crowns right around a hundred. Um, I can't remember what a ceiling historically has been like 18, 20 bucks, something like that. Um, and, uh, we just got a message, um, Missouri's, uh, just like the governor of Missouri approved an increase in reimbursement rates. It's got to get approved federally and everything, but that's supposed to be enacted as of July 1st. And, um, it's enacted, but we aren't actually getting reimbursed at these higher rates for a while, I guess. Um, but they're going to be retroactively paid. <coughs> nice. Excuse me. But, um, yeah, the rates went from like hundred bucks to stainless steel crown to like over 200. So same, same type of boat where it doubles, but it's, um, I, I still feel like it's almost too good to be true because it's like, you know, what doing the exact same amount of dentistry, the exact same overhead, um, and costs that you have to cover. And all of a sudden your collection is just going to like blow up because my practice, like 40% Medicaid, but it's amazing um, yeah. how profitable those Medicaid increases are. And it's, and, and, 
you know, a point that I've been saying, and you could speak on this too, but it's like, it would have just made more sense if instead of a gigantic doubling every 30 years, like they just keep up with inflation and, you know, every year just raise it about two or 3%. And that would, you know, maybe keep more people involved in it. But uh, have you seen other people in the area start thinking more of it? I don't think so. Last time they raised it was 1991, I think. So it's been like 30 years since they had any increase in it. And pretty much every practice in the area, nobody took it. There was either practices that were 100% Medicaid or ones that were zero. Um, And I think everyone, I'm assuming, is just swamped. They're busy. They can't really handle new patients. And once they changed it, they're like, yeah, the rates are a lot better. But we're, you know, we already have an established practice that's ready to go without the Medicaid. And uh, most of the people in my area, they're sending them to our office right now because they're not accepting them. And I don't think anyone, at least the established practices aren't planning on because they're already kind of at capacity and not really looking to open the doors on that. So I think the states that leave it like that for so long, really, it's going to be a long road to get that access to care back up. Yeah. Yeah. It really benefits the the guys like you and I who are, or, you know, um, younger pediatric dentists who are wanting to do a startup and have a lot of capacity to fill and just need butts and seats right away. It's a amazing mm-hmm. opportunity for um somebody like that but what would you say uh <clears throat> excuse me what would you say uh you know without giving solid numbers but would you say that this medicaid increase on a calendar you know year over year basis is it going to like you know add 50% to your collection say for this next year like i'm just curious what kind of cash influx this gave you for your practice um cuz i know it's going to be really substantial like you know, this year, even just this half of the year is going to be an extra probably two, three, 400 grand, like no problem in collection just from these doubling of reimbursements. But I'm just curious how impactful it's going to be on your, on the numbers for your practice. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, especially in a startup that was um, not at capacity yet, going from uh, no Medicaid, not at capacity to having the Medicaid at capacity and my overhead really didn't change. I hired one more assistant and I'm seeing, you know, like 60 or so new patients a month extra. My um, collections should be about double what they were last year, but my profitability on that is going to be about four to five times what it was last year. That's amazing. uh, For things just because my, I mean, my overhead went up the cost of one assistant and more supplies Mm -hmm. and then the production is going to double one thing. So it's, yeah, it's crazy what it can do to the numbers on a practice. Yeah, that's cool. I have a list of things that uh, it's it's been kind of a want list for a while, but uh, as this Medicaid stuff goes through, you know, just kind of as a, I almost need to like write a thank you letter to Missouri Dental Association or the governor, whoever, but you know, a list of things that I'm going to be able to do with these extra funds. But um, I'd like to give some team raises, which could be um, really appreciated and nice. I've got some materials like I'd like to do, like I still do IRM, like bleach or sodium hypochlorite and IRM pulpotomies. Um, but you know, with all that extra cash, like I could definitely go to all Neo putty, like those little expensive sticks, you know, yep. for new smile, I'll just buy a crap ton. Yeah, of those. I switched yeah. over to using all of those and they're wonderful. Yeah. Yep. going to go straight that way. I'm going to get new, really nice curing lights, maybe some new hand pieces. I'm going to buy new scrubs for the office. Just like cool, like facelift want list items that would be, you know, let you do a little bit better dentistry, kind of update things. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking, looking forward to, um, um, to some of those things, but are you doing a, are you doing a fair amount of like 
you said you're doing some in-office GA and some hospital stuff. What's uh, what's your surgery scene been looking like? Yeah, it's um, all dependent on insurance coverage. Um, in Minnesota, the Medicaid insurance will fully cover everything at a hospital setting, but they won't reimburse anything for an in-office setting. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty much um, based off of payer for where I go. Um, so the hospital, there's, um, we have really good access to hospitals in the Twin Cities. We have a children's hospital system with three campuses, um, and I'm working at two of them right now. Um, so pretty much all of the Medicaid cases are at the hospital. And then uh, quite a few of the private insurance, just depending on what their medical plans are, if they've already met their deductible, it would be covered um, at the hospital. The in-office anesthesia is all um, fee-for-service. There's no insurance accepting for it. So if their deductible is like $4,000 and it's going to be, you know, all out of pocket for the hospital, then they want to do it in the office. But if they have good coverage, we do it at the hospital. So right now I'm seeing about one day a month of in-office anesthesia, and I see about five to six patients for that. And then Mm -hmm. I'm about four to five hospital days a month where I'm seeing five patients each day for those ones. Nice. So, So, man, so you're doing like, um, yeah, five or six or three days. Yeah. Lots of hospital five or six days. Um, and, uh, so are you, are you working what f- almost five days a week then to get that many days in or are you, cause you, you're done with the associateships now and you're full time in your office. How many days a week are you mm-hmm. working? Um, I have stuff scheduled Monday through Thursday, um, for the office. I'm never open on Fridays and then I'm at the hospital probably two to three Fridays a month. Um, so I end up being, yeah, five days a week. Um, two to three weeks a month. And then I have one to two Fridays off. And then I have um, one block day on a Thursday at the hospital. And then my in-office anesthesia days, one Wednesday a month. Um, so I ended up, I ended up seeing about 12 clinic days a month. And then depending on yeah hospital availability, some months I'll have four to five hospital days. Some will have like two to three. Hmm. So it usually ends up being about 12 clinic days and then an extra three, four days at the hospital for about 16 days a month that I'm seeing, seeing patients. Yeah. You know, some, do you ever, uh, do you ever think to yourself, like at the end of a couple long weeks in a row, like, man, five days, five days a week feels like a long week or two when you stack them all up. Like maybe it's just because it's the summer and it's been busy, but, um, I think tomorrow I've got a day off tomorrow and I'm actually going to take our team to like a, a laser tag campus in a top golf. So we got like a fun nice. team day tomorrow, but, uh, it's the first one we've had in a, in a while, but man, the summer you get done with like some of these long weeks and you're just like, Oh my God, I would love to have like a couple days off. Like the five days a week thing can, I feel like it can burn you out. Some people seem to be able to do it long-term and I, I don't know how they do it because I feel like trying to do 20 or 30 years of five days a week just sounds really, really challenging, like mentally to keep, you know, to keep the face on and do the dance and go up and show up every, every day for five days a week. That's just a lot. I don't know if, if you've kind of felt the same way and maybe it's the summer part of, of me speaking, but you ever feel like that after a five day work week that you just feel like totally shot? (laughs) No, I feel, I feel kind of pathetic and I talk about this with my wife a lot, but I can't do more than one five day a week in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't do two five day weeks in a row. We try to always organize my schedule. So if I end up with two Fridays in a row at the hospital, I take a Monday off to <laughs> recover from it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we stagger this whole summer because summer is just swamped. Mm-hmm. It's just so many people calling and trying to get in on stuff that um, I, um we scheduled it for the summer where I never had two five day weeks in a row. So I always had a Thursday weekend to mm-hmm. recover. <laughs> Don't you love exhausting? Uh, I'm I'm worn out at the end of the week. 
For sure. Don't you love how we're at, we're at that point in time where I'm, I bet you've had this conversation about 10 times this week, but mom comes in new patient exam. You're like, okay, this kid's got cavities here, here, and here, you know, you go over all your informed consent and then she says, oh, okay, well, so are we going to be able to get that done today? Or is there any way we can get that done before, before school starts? And then you roll your eyes internally a little bit and you're like, oh my God, no. Like, but every, everybody expects and wants this stuff to, to be done before school, like come in last minute, get it fixed yeah. before school. And in an ideal world, that would be a really nice service to offer, but you'd have to be open about 80 hours a week to be able to keep up with that kind of demand, you know? And then on top of that, it's like, I also have three other, three other kids that are like to be seen as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, so you've got, um, you know, <clears throat> now that you're working, have a practice and this is going to be your third round of having a kiddo of your own, you know, how, what advice do you have? I guess, you know, I don't have kids yet, hopefully in the future here, but, um, you know, do you have any like, um, maternity leave, paternity leave type advice now that you've been through this a couple of times, like what, what kind of, how are you going to structure things in the office when the new baby comes about? Um, biggest thing is I tried to schedule no hospital cases in the two weeks before and the two weeks after, um, my wife's due date. Cause got a day full of clinic patients. I can call everybody and tell them that we can't do their cleaning today. I'm, my wife's in the hospital, but if I have a whole day of general anesthesia at the hospital that we've been waiting, we're booked out about four months for hospital cases. I can't just cancel a whole day of mm. patients at the hospital. Um, if things, if my wife goes into labor. So the biggest change I made was just, um, blocking out my hospital schedule for the, um, weeks around her due date. And then aside from that, it's, it's hard being a business owner on it. Um, my wife, um, she went three weeks early or three and a half weeks early on the first baby and two weeks early on the second baby. So it's like, hard to I don't really that. know when the baby's coming. <laughs> I'm not going to mark off a full week at her due date and then have the baby come three weeks early. So I didn't really end up working off any time other than changing my hospital schedule. And I'll probably take off a day or two um, right around when the baby comes. And then we'll have um, uh, my mom and mother-in-law come down and help out. And I'll probably just try to keep working on it because, um, yeah, I can't really predict it six months in advance. And I can't um, cancel, you know, a full week of seeing 30-some patients a day on everything. So, yeah, um, it's tough. Mm -hmm. This is the first one. The first baby came during residency, which I just didn't show up for a week and it was fine. <laughs> and then the second baby COVID ended up happening and I was home for it. This will be my first one with a full schedule of my own patients. So we'll kind of see how it goes. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are prepared. And to your point, you know, you can be, it's like, I don't know what everybody says. Like, oh man, it's great when you're your own, your, uh, your own boss and you're a business owner. Like you can just close the office if you want, or if you don't want to work this day, you don't have to. And it's like, you know, it's in theory on paper, you can do that. But as you and I know, like practically, like you can't, it doesn't work like that. Like you've got 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50 kids lined up in a day. Like you can't, and you know, they've, those parents have had that appointment for weeks, like parents take off work. It like, it causes a lot of ripple yeah. effects if you just shut down a day. So it's not, um, um, not always super feasible. I was going to say though, uh, I've, this is maybe not as applicable to the way you're as structured, but, um, in, in our office, since we only do in office GA, what we started doing to kind of account for, like if we have uh, weather closures or, um, um, which we've had a few times or issues with scheduling. So we do five days of GA a month, the very last, um, in office GA day, we don't schedule out months ahead of time. We leave it open. Um, or at least we try to with the idea of that day. Um, if we get like 
two weeks out or two and a half weeks out and we don't have anything catastrophic going, we'll start filling that day, which we're able to do pretty quickly. But we leave that day yeah. open in case there's like earlier in the month, a, um, uh, like a cancel it, like a, a snowstorm, and we got to move all those GA cases. Or if uh, a kid gets really sick, say like a, you know, kid has a, was exposed to COVID, but was like a one or a three star, which is like a priority system. And they've got like abscesses, bomb need to be seen. We'll move them to that day. Or if we have like a bad, um, like I had a number nine fracture on an autistic kid that needed a spec bulbotomy and the kid had a ton of other cavities. So it's like, perfect. We can, you know, you keep that day open, <clears throat> kind of like an overflow day to squeeze patients in. And then if, if you don't need it, then you just fill it full of normal kids, um, coming around, obviously harder to yeah. do if you are seeing, that, seeing patients uh, in a hospital, but in office, it seems to work pretty well. Yeah. That's another kind of thing you're alluding to there with the Medicaid and the difference in, uh, practice having Medicaid or not, the Medicaid just generates such a big OR list on things um, that before I was taking Medicaid, my OR list was like one or two days in advance. Um, and I didn't have like a whole pile up of patients I was trying to schedule. And it made scheduling at the hospital or in office really hard because I couldn't guarantee the anesthesia time um, for the hospital or for the anesthesiologist coming to the office. And so they didn't want to give me a lot of days on things. But then if something would come up or I'd have an emergent case with a abscess that I wanted to be seen, I didn't have the ability to kind of fit them in. And now that I have all this um, hospital schedule booked out, we're booked out like probably 12 or 14 hospital days at a time. If I need to add somebody on, I can save a spot to add them on an emergency or if people cancel, it's easy to backfill that because you have people four months out that are happy to um, come in sooner. And it's really, yeah, I feel like provided a lot better access of care for my patients. Just having that access to anesthesia guaranteed that I can fill these days and I can move them around and use them as I need to. And that's mm -hmm. been a really nice thing about the being busier for the general anesthesia is I can get people in when I need to get them in on that. And it's been really good. Man, David, you know, do you ever wonder what would your practice have looked like if, uh, if you would have started seeing Medicaid and say, say the state would have started with the higher reimbursement several years prior when you first got open, it's hard to imagine like what that would have looked like, you know, if from day one, you had those high reimbursement rates and this such a crazy mm -hmm. demand, like what things would, uh, <clears throat> I mean, you almost have to assume you'd be definitely at like a full capacity and having to do something drastic either start turning patients away or expand or bring on an associate or something. But, uh, you know, it makes you kind of wonder as a thought experiment, what that would have looked like almost. Yeah. I don't think I would have been able to handle it very well. I mean, I was fresh out of residency. I wasn't that fast at what I was doing and, um, the way that it ended up going, um, I'm really thankful for the associate positions. Um, I got my speed built up. I did a lot of hospital work for them. Um, and got all that stuff figured out. And then for my practice, I built my systems. I trained my staff the way I wanted to train them and got everything, kind of all the groundwork laid well, um, just because I had the time to do it. And then by the time we got busy, it was just a kind of a natural flow and everything and everything just kind of picked up. And if I would have been swamped, like you hear about some of these practices that are a hundred some new patients from day one, and I think I would have just been overwhelmed and kind of lost with it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But, but I mean, it, it depends on what stage of your career you're at when you start the practice. For sure. Yeah. Have you, um, have you had a chance to reevaluate like your other insurances? Cause I can't remember you had said 
you are in network with some other insurances as well. Like, has this Medicaid bump made you kind of reevaluate that? Or do you think it's possible in the future you might trim back on some um, like new patients or like being in network with some other insurances that now that like Medicaid might even pay better than some of your PPO plans? Like, has that factored into like accepting other insurances at all? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. Medicaid, it's crazy. Medicaid's paying better right now than most of the lower reimbursing ones. Like um, TRICARE is way lower than Medicare yeah. um, and just really hard to deal with. And then MetLife, United, um, and some of the other plans are all, they're actually lower than the Medicaid. Um, and I feel it's just a weird thought process going out of network and trying to get rid of some of the PPO plans, but from a business standpoint, um, the Medicaid, um, kind of the good reimbursing PPO plans in the Medicaid, and then being out of network with the other ones, which I think is what your kind of practice model is. Mm -hmm. um, it really makes more sense from a business standpoint. And um, I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet, but that's going to be one of the things I'm going to have to do in the next six to 12 months is try to figure out what plans I actually want to accept and what plans I don't, because I can't, I won't be able to keep up with everything. Um, and the Medicaid is um, how it's reimbursing is really more financially feasible on everything. Sure. Um, yeah. The, on the PPO side of things, I'm in network with Delta, which I foresee being in for a long time, if not forever, just the, there's so much Delta in our area and the way that they reimburse with the direct checks. I think that's, that's probably here to stick around for a while, but Medicaid reimburses better than, than about they do in network, um, to your point. So, um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of crazy, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I I've started to just trying to come up with ways to keep my schedule from filling up with just filler and nonsense and trying to stay as productive as I can be. But one of the things that I've started doing to help limit my cancels and no shows is, <clears throat> I know normally we book our six month recalls out. I'm sure you, I would assume you have some system to do the same thing, but you know, you're, you're always booking your six month recalls out and trying to get that scheduled schedule filled. Well, when you first get going, every single person that walks in the door, even if they're annoying or if they broke an appointment before, or they're always late or they, whatever X, Y, Z, um, you know, I would still put them out on six months and then they'd show up again in six months being annoying or they'd be late or they'd fail. So now, um, we kind of have a little code system in office. Like if it's a good family and it can be, doesn't matter, Medicaid, self-pay, de Delta, whatever. Like if they're a cool family, engaged, you know, um, they listen to the oral hygiene stuff you're saying, you want to see them again, we'll schedule them six months every time. But if, um, if they have a history of broken appointments, they, you know, clearly the kids aren't, um, parents aren't motivated. They're not paying attention, whatever reason you want to come up with. If there's something that's like, you know, I don't think it's going to benefit them or us to see them again, and they're going to probably fail anyways, then, um, I have a little code to the front desk and then we just say, Hey, why don't you call us in six months? Um, cause a lot of times they break that appointment anyways and they just call when something's bothering them or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think helped, uh, <coughs> cut back on some of our, our broken appointments is, you know, those patients that want to come in, you get them in, you get them scheduled. But if they're the flaky ones that don't really value your time, you just say, Hey, you call us when the time is right for you. And that way they for sure show up. And that seems to have really, cut back on the um, amount of like fails and cancels um, we have. I don't know. Do you do your recalls uh, like your scheduling kind of similar in your practice or how do you guys set that up? Yeah, pretty similar to that. We're trying to book out the six month recalls on the, um, the families that we feel like are responsible on that. 
And then other ones were just kind of letting it go on things like that and just letting them call when they um, need help on that. And then we have, uh, uh, for the private insurance patients, we have a $50 um, rescheduling fee if they miss two appointments um, on things, which we have only had to enforce a couple of times, um, but we have that. And then for the Medicaid families, we just have a no-show policy, whereas if you no-show two appointments, your same-day only um, mm-hmm. appointments for things. Um, so if they drop off the list, they don't show up, we just don't call them back and just wait for them to call. And then if they do call back to schedule, which sometimes they do, we'll just be like, you know, like, you know, we're sorry, but we um, had a no-show for the last appointment. It'll be same day or next day only appointments on things um, and try to cut down that so we don't give too many chances on that. Yep. I do mine the exact same way. Yep. Two strikes and you're out. And then if they call back, it's like, Hey, well, we had a cancellation at one o'clock today. You're welcome to show up at one o'clock. Otherwise, um, you can try calling again next week. You know, we can, I can call you if something else opens, but yeah, you know, you can, you can only cut people so many breaks when you got a hundred other kids trying to get in and get appointments mm-hmm. and you're booking out forever. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm trying yeah, to think it's just a it. really interesting thing of being a, a new startup. You're just like, I just need patience in here. You fail three appointments. I'll give you another chance because I just want to get people in, give them a good experience and build the practice up. And then once you start getting busy on stuff, it's like you're taking someone else's spot. It's not just the financial aspect of it. It's I'm booked mm-hmm. out six weeks on operative. If you fail an operative appointment, that's someone else that wanted to be seen that could have been seen that you're taking up on that. And it's like frustrating from both the financial standpoint and just the I'm here to take care of people and you're costing you know, someone else their spot to being taken care of. And um, it's just a funny, the difference a couple years into the practice, it's a different outlook on the how much I'm willing to bend over to get patients into the practice versus um, when it's just like, this is the rules and this is how it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Brian Richards is a, uh, um, friend of mine, pediatric dentist in the quad cities back in Iowa. And he's been on the podcast way back in the day, but I love one of the things he does that stirs a little controversy, but he, uh, I guess once a year, him and his team sit down and they just like fire a bunch of patients that, that they don't like, you know, every, every year there's three or four families that like, they're always difficult or they have, have all this outstanding treatment and the parents won't get it done. Or, you know, we all have those families that every time they come in, you're just like, Oh my God, this is that mom who like, she yeah. knows her TCGA and like, dad and her can't agree on it or like this mom always xyz and he just like fires them he's they'll just sends a letter like i don't want to see you anymore like eventually you get to that point in your career you're just like <laughs> i just i just don't want to yeah. like you give me a bad review i don't really care like it's just it's not worth my time or stress so like i'm, I'm not quite there yet like i still kind of care what people think about me a little bit but uh, maybe eventually in my cadre old years i'll start doing that kind of thing <laughs> I'm not there yet, but I got a couple of families that my receptionist would love for me to send a letter and fire them. But just <laughs> every time they come in, they're they're rude or late or behind or there's something that just is hardly worth dealing with. And I'm just like, oh, man, mm-hmm. I wish I was bolder and was able to fire them. But I, <laughs> I'm not at that point yet. I've got a list going uh, in the office. Anytime we have something like that, I write it down just for like future podcast material. But we had one last week. We had a um, a family for GA mom shows up on Tuesday. We have GA days, Tuesday and Friday. She's got two kids, two biological kids, both bombed. One's supposed to go on Tuesday. One's supposed to go on Friday. She shows up Tuesday with her kid that we're doing surgery on in office GA. 
and she brings six other kids with her and she's by herself and they aren't her kids. Like one of them's her kid. And then a couple of them are calling her aunt and cousin and the next door neighbor. Like she just brought everybody and she knew this was a surgery. Like there were no surprises to this. The kids were out of control the whole time running around the office. Like it was a disaster. We got this the sedation done. Well, like, um, the following days, <clears throat> as we were getting her worked up for her last kid, we had asked her politely like via our texting system, like, uh, and just as a heads up, like if possible, we'd appreciate it if we could just have, you know, the patient and yourself, um, without the distraction, some of the other kiddos, just for the safety of our patients in the office and the family, like it was worded very nice. And she like lost her mind, like all pissed off and angry. Like some people can't get a sitter, like wait till I tell my husband this, da, 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 da. like went off, totally pissed off. And, uh, we like m- my staff, like the front front desk girls really wanted to just tell her to get bent and cancel it. And I'm just like, let's just like, this kid needs some help. Let's fix the kid off, fix kid up. And then we'll like part ways with it. And, uh, it ended up going off without a hitch. She was very pleasant. She showed up by herself. Um, you know, some people get kind of tough behind like a, a keyboard or when they're texting, but, um, yeah, she, she fell into that list of, uh, you know, uh, front desk families that we, we would certainly fire if we could. So I think every office has that list, like you said. For sure. <laughs> oh man. Well, David, uh, I'm about losing my voice and I just can't stop coughing and hacking and everything else. So, uh, as, uh, as we wrap up here, I guess, you know, we kind of did a nice job. I feel like going through, you, you hit on a lot of good points. Like people interested in doing a startup, will get a lot of good info out of this episode, but, um, um, anything, uh, as we kind of wrap up, like, if you're talking to an audience of like pediatric dentists wanting to do a startup that are going down a similar path that you went down, you know, maybe they're interested in doing a startup, um, or maybe out, uh, right out of residency. And then they're also playing with the idea of taking some Medicaid, obviously every state's different, but, um, any closing thoughts or words of advice, you know, for somebody kind of interested in doing what you've done? Yeah, I think, um, the biggest thing is just the numbers have to make sense on it. Um, and for some of the states like Minnesota was previously where the reimbursement just isn't there, you have to be able to set your practice up for what you want it to be in the future, not what you want it to be, uh, or just like a way to get money at the beginning on things. And the thing that I didn't want to do was take Medicaid at the beginning, not knowing that the reimbursement would go up in the future and um, had to kick patients out of the practice. I'm like, once someone's in the practice, I want to keep you in the practice and take care of you. And if I am planning on getting rid of you in the future, I feel like I'm just kind of using you to get my practice going. And so I'm like, I'd rather kind of bite the bullet, take some, have my associate positions, be a little bit more of a slow startup and get it going with the private insurance at the beginning because I didn't want to, I wasn't planning on seeing Medicaid for my full practice if it was going to be that low of reimbursement. And I didn't want to kick people out of the practice. Um, but once the numbers made sense, when the reimbursement went up, um, then I think it's great for the practice. It's um, a great way to take care of people. I mean, we pretty much have nothing but, and Minnesota is a little different because we've had such poor access to care, but we just have really pleasant patients that have come in. They're so appreciative of being seen and um, they've just been great for the practice for many different reasons. And um, I've been thrilled with uh, um, taking Medicaid um, for this year for the practice, but the numbers, I think the numbers and the vision for the practice are big things to pay attention to and make sure that you're setting things up for how you want them to be in the future, not just trying to get by in the present. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll support that. <clears throat> Completely agree. Like, you know, you get some crappy families and, and everybody likes to complain and I certainly do as well. But, you know, for every really bad family that comes in, that's really annoying or late or cancels, you get a really good family that's, you know, parents are working and they're just, you know, working middle-class families. They qualify for Medicaid. That's the coverage they have. The kids are great. Um, you know, and it's just kind of a game where you're just trying to weed out and find those families and kids that appreciate your time and service and weed out the ones that just are kind of abusing you and your, your, you know, good faith, I guess. So it's a bit, a bit of a game you play, but, uh, um, you know, to your point, a lot of good benefits to seeing it. You know, if you're, if you like doing the hospital and GA stuff that gets busy right away, you put a lot of butts and seats. It's a lot of operative, which is productive, you know, lots of stainless steel crowns, you know, it, it, in the beginning. And it's a, like a word of mouth thing. I've always thought that if you see some Medicaid, there's a hidden benefit of those parents, you know, are going to be your biggest fans. Like you said, they're so appreciative because they can't get care anywhere else. Mm -hmm. They tell everybody, you know, then they're non-Medicaid friends and, or, you know, just friends in general, they're just going to talk about you like, oh man, Dr. Knight, that guy was great. He saw us like, he's so good with the kids. And they're just like, your, you know, your, uh, your spokespeople. So there's a hidden marketing benefit there too, which is kind of cool. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, David, I, uh, appreciate you coming on. I know we, we did this one a little bit later with the kids and everything. So it's always hard to muster up the last little bit of, <laughs> bit of energy on a, on a 10 o'clock podcast, but I feel like we did a, you did a nice job to kind of telling us about your practice and everything. So appreciate you coming on and telling us your story and, uh, maybe we'll do this again in um, a couple of years. We'll get another update on how things are going. You've reached capacity. You've got an associate, you're building another location. Things are just blowing up. So I, we'll, uh, We'll touch base again in a few years, maybe, and see what our see what our progress is looking like. Yeah, absolutely. It was good to catch up with you, buddy. Thanks for listening to the Bruise and Tiny Teeth podcast. Be sure to DM our host Casey Getz on social media with any listener questions, comments, or tough clinical situations. We'll see you next week for another unfiltered episode.